0: Three weeks ago, I think, is when we started this study called Destroyers of the Gods. And um, I thought I would have four weeks to do it, but I have to be gone in two weeks at a a seminary retreat. So we're going to wrap it up tonight. And so if you've been with us, you kind of have an idea of what has been going on here. Because we finished 1 Peter just about a month and a half ago, uh, I decided to give you a context, a historical context, of what it was like to be a Christian In the early days, what was it like to be a first Christian? And to do that, we began talking about the context of the first Christians. And we said that the title Destroyer of the Gods, Destroyers of the Gods, comes from the story of Pluto, of Polycarp, who was executed, but just before he was martyred, the crowd in the amphitheater began to scream Death to the Christian, death to the atheist, he is the destroyer of our gods. That's where the title comes from, an actual story in the second century, the beginning of the second century. That's how the Christians were viewed by the people around them because they entered a society that was organized. If you know anything about Roman history, you know that it was a very organized society. The military was organized. The cities were organized. They gave us the grid pattern for city life. Everything in that environment, from politics to finance to the military, was an It was an organized society. Religion was organized, but it was a pluralistic religion. It was a very advanced civilization. The Christians entered into this existing system as a foreign entity, and they stood out because of their theological convictions, because of their counter-cultural practices, and because of their moral practices. They were called menaces. Followers of a strange and pernicious and mischievous superstition. They were designated as dangerous, subversive, and intellectually deficient. They were charged with the crime of hatred for mankind because, and I quote, piety towards the gods was thought to ensure the well being of a city, to promote a spirit of kinship and mutual responsibility to bind together the citizens and the Christians refused to worship the gods of Rome and therefore they were called atheists and they were called those who hate mankind. So when the Christians appeared into a city, A perfect illustration of what happened is in Acts chapter 17. We've talked about this verse a couple of times already, but in verses six and seven of Acts 17, this is what happens when Christians enter. Paul is in that story with Silas and it says, these men have upset the world and now they're here also in Thessalonica. And Jason, one of the locals has welcomed them and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying, here's their claim, there is another King Jesus. So the Christians were different. They stood out. They had a different king. They had a different savior. They had a different God. And they had somebody different than every other Roman to whom they pledged their allegiance. And their commitment to one another as a community made them stand out even more. And we talked about the community of the first Christians. That is, it was an ethnic community, a very diverse community community ethnically diverse community colossians three eleven says in christ there is no greek no jew nor barbarian or scythian nor slave or free but everyone is in christ equal or in christ all is in all in other words they embraced everybody they embraced all the different ethnicities if you go back to acts chapter 2 you'll see that the tongues fall on the individuals, they get the Holy Spirit, and then in Acts 3, they begin preaching, and 5,000 people get saved. Acts chapter 4, another 3,000 get saved. And these people are coming from all over the Roman Empire. So from the very beginning, from the very first sermon that the apostles preached after Jesus ascended, the conversions were multi-ethnic But not only were they from all different countries and all different people groups, they also embraced people from different socioeconomic classes. In Acts 2, at the very end, it says that the people that joined the church, they were sharing everything that they had. They began to love one another and they began to share whenever somebody had need. They weren't characterized by saying, Go be warm and be filled as James talks about. Rather, they said, no, if you have a need, I will help you, I will serve you. But also, in addition to this ethnic and socioeconomic diversity, they had a diversity of genders in the sense of they accepted both men and women. Other Roman clubs did not. Other Roman organizations that were formally established, sanctioned by the emperor, by the Senate, they were exclusive to one gender because the women weren't valued in that society. And so the men would gather together and have their little groups, but the women were excluded. Christians did it differently. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is no slave or free man. There is no female or male, for all are one in Christ. That doesn't mean there is no gender, biologically. It means that when it comes to a relationship with Christ, when it comes to relationships with one another, We don't judge people. Christ doesn't judge people based on your gender. We respect everyone and we treat everyone equally because everyone is made in the image of God. But as they entered the society with a very different persuasion, a very different conviction, what guided them? And that takes us to our third section, and that is the canon. You see, Christians had an authority. They had an authoritative body of literature that they subscribe to. And as we think about the first Christians, one of the questions we have to understand is, where did the canon come from? Most of us are familiar with our Bibles, our English Bible. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So how did that happen? When did that happen? It didn't just kind of happen all at once on a single weekend, where 66 books were brought together, and now you have a Bible. It was a period of time that passed as the early Christians began to think about Scripture. They began to think about their Bible and what is authoritative for life and practice. They had to first embrace the Old Testament and then add to it, as the New Testament was being written over a period of about 65 years. In order to understand how the Bible came together, we have to look at an individual called Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. First, he was a a general in the Roman Jewish War, which lasted from AD 66 to AD 73. It was one of the most challenging periods for Jewish history In the Roman context, because Rome came in ultimately and killed a million Jews, according to Josephus. They destroyed the temple, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem pretty much into rubble. Josephus was a general. He was one of the rebels. Well, he was fighting in Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, northern part of Israel. And when he was essentially surrounded, he gave up. He became a traitor. And he started to work for the Roman military. He started to work for the emperor. And he said, let me write a history of the Jewish people for you and help you understand that we're not that bad. Yeah, we've got this war going on and we keep killing you and stabbing you and we have assassins going around every city, stabbing the Roman soldiers, but we're not that bad. And so he writes the Jewish history in order to defend his people. But in his writings, he has a lot of books that he's written. In his writings, as he tries to defend the Jewish people and give a history of the Jewish people to the Roman emperor and the leadership of Rome, there's a section in which he talks about the Jewish canon, the Jewish Old Testament. What is it? What does it consist of? And it's helpful for us as we analyze and really compare our Old Testament to the New Testament, to the Old Testament of the first century. And this is a quote from one of his books. He says, We, the Jewish people, have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine, and of them, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. This interval of time was a little short of 3,000 years. But as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. So we have five mosaic, and now we add 13 more called the prophets. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So we get to 22 books in three categories. That's what he says. Now you have 22 books but how do we get to our 39 books? This is how we get there. The Jewish people in their Old Testament to this day have 22 books. But see, they combine certain books. For example, we have two Samuels, they have one. We have two kings, they have one. We have Jeremiah Limitation, it's one book for them. The 12 prophets that we're studying now on Sunday nights, it's one big book for them. So when you actually begin to understand how they organize them, we have the same exact 22 books if you were to organize them this way. In other words, our Old Testament canon is the same canon of the first century. He was writing within 30 years of Jesus' departure. And then you open up to Luke 24, verse 44, and this is what you read straight from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is right before the ascension. That all of these things, which are written about me in the law of Moses, first five books, and the prophets, 13 books, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The last four books that we saw on the previous screen. In other words, Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament was the same understanding as Josephus. He divided his Bible, Jesus that is, into three sections and that's what he knew, that's what he quoted, that's what he preached. And the reason that the Psalms are mentioned is because the Psalms would be the first book kind of standing at the head of that third section representing all of the other poetic writings like Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and Job and so on. In other words... The canon of the Jewish people that Jesus had is the one that you have and I have. We have the same exact book. In other words, our Bible, at least the first half of it, goes back to the time of Jesus in exactly the same organization. The reason that matters is because the Apocrypha is missing. Some of you have heard about the Apocrypha. How many of you have? Just raise your hand. Okay, so some of you, about half, have heard of the Apocrypha. That's in the Catholic canon, but it wasn't added until 1546 in response to the defense of the Purgatory Doctrine. Because they preached the Purgatory, but they didn't have any defense of it in Scripture. So in the Apocrypha, they found a verse that doesn't talk about the Apocrypha, by the way, if you want to go read it. But they added it as a way to defend it because what happened is they were selling indulgences in order to build St. Vatican, the Vatican Square in Rome. So they had to defend the sale of indulgences. So they said, we're going to make Apocrypha canonical. So if you have questions, well, okay, why do the Catholics have 13 more books than we do? This is where it goes back to. Your Old Testament is the same Old Testament that Jesus had. But by the time you get into the New Testament era, the time of Jesus, the Old Testament that they had wasn't Hebrew. Now, it still existed and some read it, but it was primarily Greek. Some of you might have heard about the the term the Septuagint. How many have? The Septuagint. There we go. Love it. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it began to be translated in the year 250 BC. And it lasted for 125 years before the translation was complete. From 250 to 125 BC, the Old Testament was finally translated into Greek. Because Alexander the Great came into Israel in 300 B.C. and said, we're going to unify the world under the Greek ideals. The Greek language is the best language in the world. Everybody is going to speak Greek. And so he imposed it onto the people that he conquered. Some of those people were the people living in Israel. And so for 300 years before Jesus was even born, the Greek language was beginning to infiltrate Israel. And people began to learn it. They came from back from exile in 500s B.C., and they had forgotten Hebrew. They began to study Aramaic. And they still spoke Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic as well. But most of them began to speak Greek. And so in order to be able to read their scriptures in their language, it was translated, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The title the Septuagint. You've probably seen the letters LXX, which means 70. It comes from an old letter, the letter of Aristeas which basically asserts that 70 people in 70 different places sat down at the same time and translated the Old Testament into Greek, and when they figured it out, it was exactly the same. Scholars have demonstrated that to be a fable. That's not how it happened. People were working in Alexandria in Egypt, and it took 125 years for it to be translated into the Greek language. It matters because the Bible of the first Christians... Was the Septuagint. A lot of the translations. Most of the quotations rather. In the New Testament from the Old Testament. Come from the Septuagint. Not the Hebrew version. Because the people were speaking Greek. And so they were reading their Greek Bible. The first Christians were looking at their Greek Bibles. It became the authorized version for those Christians. That takes us. Basically, up to the time of Jesus, up to the time of Paul. Paul quotes the Septuagint, Hebrews quotes the Septuagint, Matthew, the New Testament quotes the Septuagint. But as we get into the early phases of Christianity, Christians continued to write. They continued to write scripture, which is how we got the New Testament, but they weren't calling it canon at that point we call it the canon the 66 books it's called the protestant canon that's our book our bible there's the catholic canon and so on there's the hebrew canon but they were calling it scripture we know this second peter three fifteen and 16 peter says at the end of his second letter consider the patience of our lord as salvation just as also our beloved brother paul the apostle paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters. So by the time that Peter writes his second letter, late 60s AD, Paul has written multiple letters. In fact, almost all of them. They die about the same time, 67 or 68 AD, Peter and Paul are executed. And so Peter says these letters that Paul wrote, he is speaking in them of things like these. He just talked about eschatology in chapter 3. And then he says this, in which, these letters, some of the things are hard to understand. So if you have a problem understanding Romans, guess what? So did Peter. Peter had a a little bit of a difficult time to understand all of what Paul wrote. And then he says this, which the untaught and the unstable distort. He was talking about false prophets in chapter 2 and saying they distort scripture. As they do the rest of the scripture. So what happened in this verse is this. Peter is referring to Paul's writings as Scripture. For him, Scripture was the Old Testament. But 30 years after Jesus is gone, mid-60s, late-60s, he's now seeing Paul's writings, and he says this is also Scripture, which is now authoritative for the Christian life. 1 Timothy 5.18. The Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And the labor is worthy of his wages. He's quoting that scripture. Jesus quoted that scripture as well in Luke. But then the most famous verse that some of you have memorized, Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is inspired by God. From Paul's perspective, when he writes that to Timothy shortly before his death, he's thinking primarily about the Old Testament, but by this point, New Testament books have been written. And so if we take Peter's understanding of Scripture as including some of the New Testament books, we can then expand and say Second Timothy doesn't merely refer to the Old Testament. It also refers to the New Testament books. And at that point, by the end of the 60s, it's already becoming authoritative for the Christian life. This is what the Christians used to refer to their authoritative writings, scripture. It's religious writings, it's hagiographa, holy writings. And they became authoritative for life and practice. But before we get to the conclusion of the New Testament, the 27 books, time passed before the church, broadly speaking, in the Roman Empire began to acknowledge that these are the 27 books that are scripture and as we go back in history try to kind of reconstruct the chronology of the meetings and the conversations and the acknowledgement and the approval of some of these books as scripture we begin in the year 180 AD AD 180 there's a man named Irenaeus of Lyon he was a disciple or a listener of Polycarp we talked about Polycarp destroyer of the gods that guy who was a disciple of John the Apostle. So you have a third-generation Christian, Irenaeus. And this is what he writes. In his writings, he says that there are 23 of 27 books that he mentions in his writings as authoritative scripture. In other words, by 180, there's already a reference that this is authoritative. This is scripture, 23 of the 27 books. And he became one of the greatest defenders and apologists of the Christian faith in the same year there's been a fragment that has been found it's called the Muratorian fragment and it lists 22 of the 27 books that we have pull back 3 years in AD 177 there was a christian by the name of Theophilus lived in Antioch and he talks about the gospels the pauline letters revelation and a number of the general epistles as being authoritative and scripture Then you get to Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria, you might have heard his name. He was the head of school in Alexandria, which became one of the most important cities in early Christianity. One of the most important writers in the second century. And he accepts all 27 New Testament books as authoritative, as canonical. This is the year 198. Then you have somebody by the name of Justin Martyr. You've heard of him most likely. He is a famous apologist. He takes us to the year 140. In the 140s, he talks about a canon being formed, an authoritative list of books being formed. There's another person named Marcion. He was a heretic, but he kind of chops up the the new testament and says okay these are authoritative these are not in other words he's working with some list that predates him and he selectively as a heretic says okay i'm gonna accept these but i'm not gonna accept this he was an anti-semitic individual and so he kind of rejected the old testament and some of the other jewish leaning books this is in the 140s then you get to the year 125 so john died in the early 100s so probably within 20 years, of the last apostle passing away, we have a man named Aristides. Aristides writes a letter to the emperor Hadrian, the Roman emperor Hadrian, and he urges him in this letter to read the gospels. Now, that means that Hadrian has access to the gospels. A Roman emperor has access to the gospels, and he shares the gospel with this individual, and he mentions four gospels and refers to them as having authority and canonical. What we see from here is this. People argue, liberal scholars especially, that the canon, the way we have it today, the 66 books, specifically the 27 books of the New Testament, really did not come about as an authoritative group or a collection of scriptures until the late 300s, which is when a council of church leaders met in Ephesus and Carthage. They had multiple meetings toward the end of the 300s, and they finally said, okay, these are the 27 books. Now, that's official, that's recorded, there's evidence for all that. However, what I'm saying is 200 plus years earlier, you have Christians who are recognizing certain books as authoritative, as holy, and then rejecting other books as not holy and not authoritative, and so they're debating... And they came up with certain principles by which they would determine which book was authoritative and which was not. For the first Christians, as time developed and as they heard these sermons and as the letters were being written from pers- to persons like Philemon, Timothy, Titus, or then to churches like Ephesus and Colossae and Galatia and so on, they began to receive them, think about them and realize, okay, this is different. This is on par with the Old Testament, Holy Scripture, and therefore we need to treat it differently. When you look at the early church fathers, which are second century pastors, preachers, writers, we understand that they have acknowledged most of these books as authoritative. Well, an example also comes about the existence of an understanding of a collection of authoritative books from the pagans who began to attack the holy writings of Christians. And they began to mock these sacred books. In other words, even non-Christians who were arguing with Christian apologists like Justin the Martyr, they would say, well, you have these books, and they would talk about them, and they would mock them. In other words, it became so prominent that these are the Christian books, these are the authority of Christian books, that even non-Christians began to know of them and interact with them. But as you see these de- things developing, what you have to understand is as Christians are writing the New Testament, between early 40s, most likely James is the first book written in 44, 45. Most likely John is writing last in the year 95, his five letters, uh, five works, the gospel, three letters and revelation. In that 50 year period or so, Christians are leading the charge on literacy. They became those individuals who began to advance literacy in the Roman world. In fact, they became known as the bookish religion. The bookish religion, the nerds, let's just call it that. They're the people who like to write books and read books and memorize books and study books. Here's a quote from one of the New Testament Scholars, reading, writing, copying, and the dissemination of texts had a major place, indeed a prominence in early Christianity, that except for ancient Jewish circles was unusual for religious groups of the Roman era. Some scholars have even said that the early Christian movement had texts at the very heart and soul of this movement. And they didn't only read them and embrace them and memorize them and meditate on them. They actually began to embrace a new technology called the Codex in order to promote the books. You see, until this time, books were written on scrolls. You can see that on the right. That was a typical way to write a book. You, if you want to see one that is actually real, you can go to the seminary. On the first floor, there's this massive shrine built to the Torah scroll. It's huge. That's an example of it. The Christians began to see, uh, began to adapt something that's called the Codex, which is basically the first version of a book. These little leaflets, they wrote them and then they stacked them together and they collected them in some fashion and it became a first generation book. Christians were the ones who advanced it. Here's how we know this. 95% we're talking about the first couple centuries, 95% of non-Christian books of that era are on scrolls. In other words, 5% on a codex. Of the Christian writings, of which we have hundreds, 75% of those are on a codex. So you're comparing 75% of Christian books on a codex, first generation book, versus 5% of non-Christian books on a codex. Christians embraced this new technology and said, we're going to advance our writings in this new way because it stands out. There's something different physically than what everybody knows about the academic side of things. In other words, scholars have concluded Christians were at the forefront of literacy in the first couple centuries. They popularized the codex. They didn't invent it, but they popularized it and advanced it throughout the Roman Empire and they did this to accommodate the larger texts that they wrote and they wrote them in order to be publicly read think about 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13 paul says to timothy until i come give attention to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and teaching the reason that we have a moment in our sunday morning service when pastor john gets up and reads a psalm and then prays is based on this verse You have to allot a time in your corporate gathering for the reading of Scripture. So Christians did that. They read Scripture publicly when they met together. They adopted this practice from the Jewish people from the Old Testament. We see examples of that and then Second Temple Jewish practices as well. This is what one individual says. Reading of the law and the teaching of the commandments is one of the purposes for the building of the synagogue. So the Jewish people inherently understood that we need a place where the law can be read and explained, the synagogue. So the Christians picked that up from the Jewish people and continued, why? Because the very first Christians were all Jewish. The 12 disciples were Jewish. Paul was Jewish and on and on and on. So they picked up their own tradition and applied it to their Christian life. There was a strong appreciation for the oral reading of Scripture when Christians got together. But what we also know is that Christians read their Bibles personally, individually. The reason that your small group leader tells you, have you read your Bible today? Treating you like a 12-year-old. The reason we talk about this, read your Bible. Do you read your Bible once a year? Do you read your Bible? Do you memorize your Bible personally? It's because that's what the early Christians were doing. We know this because some of these miniature scrolls have been found, personalized, something you can carry with you of Christian writings. But we also know that Paul didn't only write books to churches, to groups. He also wrote Philemon. He wrote Titus. He wrote First and Second Timothy. These are books directed to persons, individuals. Yes, they were his associates. Yes, they were his disciples. But these are individuals and they received a personal letter and God's kindness. They were preserved for us and protected and placed into our canon. What we talk about what we're talking about is the first 300 years of Christianity was a massive era of focusing on writing, on focusing on books. We have over 200 individual texts like Titus Philemon and so on, from that period, written to individuals. And one professor says this, one scholar, "Among the many other Roman-era religious groups, there is simply no analogy for this variety, vigor and volume in christian literary output early christianity was phenomenally prolific and varied in literary output there is no comparable religion no comparable cult from the same era that matches to the christian focus on writing on reading on memorization of the written word here's what's fascinating before AD 300, the reason that year is an important year in Christian history is because shortly after AD 300, Constantine becomes the emperor, and he legalizes Christianity. Officially, he says, okay, stop persecuting Christians. It didn't happen at AD 300. AD 313, he, he writes the Edict of Tolerance, and it's, uh, Christians are allowed to practice their religion. But until that period, 300s, early 300s, we don't have... We have almost no Christian buildings that survive. Christian sacred spaces, relics. Because the Christians couldn't legally own property. They couldn't legally organize. They couldn't legally form a religion. So what they did is they met in their homes. They met in their apartments. They rented schools like in Acts, 18, Acts 19. rather. They met wherever they could, outside in the fields. But once they had the legal standing to now become a religion, churches pop up, basilicas pop up. And now we have surviving buildings from the early, kind of mid, the the middle ages because the Christians began to focus on that. But we have hundreds and hundreds of Christian writings that survive in those few hundred years. And you compare that with the Roman cults and, and religions, and guess what you have? You have a lot of buildings. If you go to Italy, if you go to Europe, if you go to Africa, you have Roman religious buildings you have the pantheon which stands in the center of rome from about 100 ad or so and you have these religious buildings that are preserved because rome roman religions built them but they didn't write text what i'm trying to say is this christianity was always a religion or a following of christ through the bible through the written word it wasn't about mysticism. It wasn't about some just miraculous and then you kind of find God that way for the rest of your existence. No, there was the miraculous in the first few decades through the apostles, through Jesus. But once the written word came into play, the Christians focused on it. To a degree? The average letter that exists today from the Roman era, non-Christian, average letter is 87 words long. Okay, 87 words. The shortest letter that Paul wrote is 395 words long. Paul talked a lot. That's Philemon. That's four times as long. Cicero, how many of you have heard of Cicero? There we go. You have, some of you have taken Greek and Roman history. Thank you for doing that. Cicero is one of the most famous orators and writers, academics, attorneys, Uh, From the early, from antiquity. He was around when Julius Caesar was around. His longest letter that he wrote, and he was prolific as a writer. His longest letter is 2,500 words. Paul's letters average twice that. Three times that, rather. Romans is 7,100 words. And then they get longer. Some of them do. Compare the Gospels, okay? The shortest Gospel is Mark. It's 11,000 words. John is 15,000 words. Matthew is 19,000 words. Luke and Acts together is 38,000 words. It's a two part single book, basically. Luke, Acts. It's part one, part two. It's a sequel. And then you compare it to one of the most famous writers who wrote the longest letter of 2,500 words. Christians were investing into the writing process and they wrote long letters. And remember this, Cicero was a professional orator, a professional lawyer, a professional writer. That was his career. In Rome, you could make, your way, make yourself famous in one of two ways, military or the legal profession. And he chose the legal profession. And he wrote only up to 2,500 words or so. He did that on his free time. Christians weren't professional writers. Paul wrote his 13 letters, perhaps 14 letters, if you believe Hebrews is Pauline, while he was traveling, while he planted dozens and dozens of churches, while he was in prison, while he traveled between 6,000 and 10,000 miles in his ministry career. He was writing books on a ship. On a temporary stay perhaps even in jail well we know that not perhaps we know there's four books he wrote in jail Ephesians Galatians Philippians and Philemon fast forward a little bit and Christians in the 100s wrote books when they were being led to the execution like Ignatius wrote 10 letters some of them to, seven of them to the church in Rome as he is moving from Antioch to Rome for his execution Christians redeemed the time whenever they had to spend time with the Bible and to write the Bible and write Christian letters to other Christians. The reason that there's this disparity between the sizes of non-Christian and Christian books is because most of the writings of the ancient world are personal. Hey, how are you doing? How's your family? How's the business going? Signing off. 80 letters, 80 words. Christians decided to write in order to Edify. Equip, inform, educate the people that they fellowshipped with. They took that opportunity to say there's something greater than, hey, how's it going? There's something more important than just talking about our business. There's something eternal that binds us and let's talk about it. Let's write about it and let's study it together. And they ex- exposited the scripture through their writings you guys, the next time you read through your New Testament, notice how many Old Testament quotes appear. What they're doing when they write the New Testament is they're leaning on the scripture that they have at whatever period of time they have. James in the 40s, Mark in the 50s, Matthew in the 50s, Luke in the 60s. Paul in the 50s and 60s, whatever they have written at that point, whatever they have access to, they're quoting because they're taking the Bible in their era that's available to them and they're explaining it to the people that they're writing to. This is their Bible, their canon. And Christians, when you begin to study these hundreds of works, you realize they wrote personal letters, theological treatises, sermons, apologetical works, gospels, letters to churches. They wrote about church polity. They wrote about the apocalypse. They wrote hymnic works. They wrote martyr stories. They wrote about the history of the church. And they wrote deep exegetical works. You guys, this is our heritage. I'm sorry if I'm giving you way too much information. You didn't come here for this. I want you to understand where you come from. I want me to remember that the reason that we preach the Bible, we read the Bible, we tell you to memorize and meditate the Bible is because that's what the first Christians did from day one. And they died for it. In order to translate the Bible from the Greek to the Hebrew, from the Hebrew to the Latin, from the Latin to the English, German, French, and on and on and on, people died because they're being persecuted, because the authorities didn't want the Bible to be available in the language of the people because therefore they couldn't control them anymore. From inception, Christianity was a religion that engages your mind because that affects your life. And if we don't read our Bibles... life will show that which is why we encourage you to read your bible make a commitment we're almost done with 21 make a commitment i will read my bible cover to cover next year because that's what the early christians did because that's how they expressed their affection for jesus christ make a goal you've been staring at some christian book on your shelf for a few months now and every time you reach for it you're like ah Netflix is easier. Make a goal. Even, look, we're entering a holiday week. So I'm going to read that book. Because that's what the first Christians did. Abner, on Sunday night, preached such a great message on investing into your knowledge of God. That's what you do. That's what I'm doing when we read our Bibles. We're investing into our knowledge of God. And if you look on the screen, Hosea 4-6... through 6, summarizes the problem that the people of God in the old testament had when what happens when you stop spending time with God's word my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge so let us know let us press on to know the Lord for God says I delight in loyalty which is the word love hesed, rather than sacrifice in other words, God cares more about your true affection for him that is built upon his word than your sacrifices that you're making. Literally, in that case, the animals that are being sacrificed. Metaphorically, for us, the time that you spend and sacrifice to serve the church at the expense of your personal relationship with God. God says, I delight in loyalty or love for me more than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings talked about this last june when we looked at the life of saul that we should never prioritize activity for god above a relationship with god that's why i'm talking about the first christian commitment to the bible let's imitate their example let's pursue their quest for the knowledge of god through the study of scriptures it will then shape your convictions For the rest of your life, which is our next category as we study the first Christians. The convictions of the first Christians. And the primary one that I want to focus on is their understanding of who to worship. Who do we worship? You have Zeus. You have Jupiter. You have Athena. You have hundreds of gods available to you to worship in the first, second, third century. Who do you worship? You have Yahweh and then Jesus shows up. And this is what we read about Christianity. Christianity entered this milieu and made some rather startling claims. In contrast to the conventional religious conceptions of the day, the followers of Jesus claimed that there was only one God who created everything. This God cared about humanity to the point of sending his own son in the flesh to atone for their sins. Even more preposterous, This atoning self-sacrifice took place through the shameful spectacle of crucifixion, a death reserved for slaves, criminals, and enemies of the state. The figure of Jesus was certainly an oddity in the religious smorgasbord of antiquity. Amid the plethora of divinities being worshipped in the first century, it is remarkable that anyone would dare to add a crucified Jewish peasant to the list. And even more remarkable that the primitive Jesus movement would snowball into an empire-wide phenomenon. Now you get a sense of how contradictory they were to the existing religious environment. That they now added in the Pantheon, right? Which is basically a building that is devoted to all gods. Pan, all, seon, seos, gods. That's how we get the word. They added Jesus. A crucified Savior. There is no other crucified God in religious history. But they said salvation is found in Christ alone. Which is why we preach that. If you're not a Christian, you will not be saved by anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. And all it takes is for you to come to him and say, here's my sin. I don't want it anymore. I don't want to live for myself. I'm seeking satisfaction and and contentment and I'm not getting it. And I'm also rebelling against the God of the universe and the King of all kings. And so, if you come to Him humbly, confessing your sin, affirming that you have been rebelling against Him, and He will forgive you, and He will never judge you ever. He will only welcome you and call you brother or sister, and you will spend eternity with Him. The Christians began to preach this message. They began to preach a kingdom that is not physical but spiritual. They said that happiness isn't the main purpose of life. They said that this life is temporary. It's a journey. It's moving us towards eternity that God had set in the heart of man from the very beginning. And we long for it. We're drawn to eternity because of that decision by God. And so the members of the Christian church were baptized into Christ Jesus they were expected to be loyal to King Jesus, above the emperor and above any other cultic figure. And so that's why when they show up in Thessalonica, the people are screaming, they are preaching a different God, they are claiming another king, his name is Jesus. And so riots break out, but some convert, and then they get attacked Because they've changed their allegiances from Zeus to Jesus. And so Christians have different convictions. They have a new citizenship. We're citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20. We have a new perspective that is eternal, not temporal. Colossians 3. We have a new value system. We're not living for the physical pleasures of this world. Epicureanism preached that. Christianity doesn't. Self-importance doesn't matter. We're not going to find our meaning in immorality. We have a mindset that is focused on eternity, on a different place. Hebrews 11 talks about a city made by God in heaven. We have a new self-awareness. Philippians 2 says we have a mind of humility, which was mocked and ridiculed in the Roman world. Nobody wanted to be humble because the humble were two types of people the slaves and the lowest of the low. Those were the humble people. No elite, educated, important individual in the Roman world was a humble person. But the Christians said, as Jesus said, I've come to serve. And Paul says, have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2. So our self awareness has changed. We don't care about pedigree or education or power or influence. We care about the future exaltation of Jesus Christ through our faithfulness to him. The Christians truly did flip the world upside down in everything, theologically, socially, economically. Even from the benefits that they began to provide to the Roman world. They introduced philanthropy. Into the Roman world. They even invented a word. Humility of mind. Philippians 2.3. Doesn't appear. Before Philippians 2.3. Or let me say this. It doesn't appear before the New Testament. It appears seven times in the New Testament. It's their invention. Because a Christian. Thinks differently. He or she is a humble individual. And so with these tenets. Paul then enters. An individual's life, preaches the gospel, the person gets converted, and then their life changes. And it takes us to our final category, our conduct changes. Our conduct changes. Generally speaking, the Roman religions did not connect religion with conduct. There was a disconnect there. In other words, they didn't preach ethics. They didn't preach morality as part of your religious conviction. Now, some philosophers talked about self-control. And they talked about not doing things that bring you shame as a motivation to live a life of happiness. But they weren't preaching, watch your language. Watch your moral life or your immoral life. The Christians introduced that into the religious environment. Men in the Roman world were given freedom to do whatever they wanted to do with whomever they wanted to do it with. They had full sexual freedom. Women were expected to be chaste and committed to their husbands. Not all were, but that was the expectation. There was a disparity in regards to what was expected of men and women. One Greek writer says this, We men have heteroi, concubines for pleasure. Female slaves for our daily care, and the implication there is sexual, and wives to give us legitimate children and to be the guardians of our household. In other words, yeah, women are basically used for pleasure or to protect our households. They give us legitimate heirs so we can pass on our inheritance. That's what we use them for. And then you open up 1 Timothy 3. If you're a husband, you can only have one wife. Not normal in the Greco-Roman world. 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, each of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. In other words, you have self-control sexually. First Thessalonians four eight: abstain from sexual immorality. That is God's will for your life. So sexual morality now gets changed, and it's not you can't do whatever you want to do anymore, like everybody else did. And just consider that any flow basically of an epistle, uh, rather a flow of any epistle in the New Testament, the first chapter or two is about you in Christ your salvation, your union with Christ, who you are in your relationship with Christ. And then the second half of almost all epistles is what? Therefore, this is how you live, right? Here's the fact. Now here's fulfillment of that fact. You live a different life. You wouldn't find that in other religious writings. This is a Christian approach. In other words, Christianity created a conduit from your mind, your religious understanding to your life. And your life, your conduct changes if you are a Christian in response to what you believe. And what they began to look at in their society initially is the most helpless, the children. And so we can talk for a few minutes about adoption and abortion. There was a practice in the ancient Roman world of exposing the infants. What that means is you would have a baby... And you would either leave that baby on the front steps of your house or on a trash heap if you didn't want that baby. We have a letter from a Roman soldier. His name is Hilarion. He writes this letter one year, 1 BC. So Jesus is probably four or five years old at this point when this letter is written. He writes a letter to his wife, Alice, A-L-I-S. And he writes a very kind, loving, affectionate letter. He greets her with very affectionate terms. He says to her, please take care of our little child. He says, I'll send you some money when I get paid in the military. He greets her in-laws. He was a pretty good husband. But then he says this. She's expecting a baby before he left home. And then he says this. If the baby is born when I'm away, if it's a boy, let it be. If it's a girl, cast her away. So we're not looking at a monster here. He loves his wife. He loves his existing human baby. Are there any other babies than human? He loves his baby. They're all human. He even cares for the in-laws. He's kind to them in this letter. And he's not lacking for money. It's not a decision of poverty. I can't afford another child. It's a decision that was normal. I want a boy. I don't want a girl. So if I get a girl get rid of her. And hundreds of thousands of babies went through that fate every single year. Because that was one way to do gender selectivity. You don't have the technology we have today to control the gender of your baby. And I don't want this baby. Let's manipulate stuff. You're looking at a practice. Some estimate 150,000 slaves were added to the system every single year through this practice. Because what happened is this. When the baby was exposed on the steps or in the trash heap, um, gladiator schools would come by. Prostitute houses, brothels would come by and pick them up. And slaves, they would pick them up and then they would sell these babies into slavery. And 150,000 new slaves were added to the Roman system every single year through the children who were being exposed, that's the term, or abandoned. Justin Martyr, we talked about him earlier, the apologist for the Christian faith in 140s AD, says this: for most of these babies, their fate became a male or a female prostitute. There's a letter called the Shepherd of Hermes. Some of you have heard about it, it's a very famous christian writing from the second century he he was a uh, an individual who experienced this his parents dumped him outside somebody picked him up he got sold to a woman named rhoda he ultimately was freed he became a very successful merchant but he writes in his letter going through this experience it was it's a very famous letter it's a very famous individual he was a victim of this practice there are no Roman laws that banned it, prohibited it. That doesn't mean that everybody practiced it. it doesn't mean that nobody looked you know, with disdain at it. But there was no law prohibiting abandonment of children. One writer says this, With abortion and abandonment, we come to a distinct parting of the ways between Christians and the general Greco-Roman practice. Christians adopted these babies And they brought them into the church and they gave them a safe and a beautiful life in contrast to the gladiatorial schools or the brothels. In our day and age, 60 million children have been already aborted since Roe v. Wade. That's our version of that same practice. We're no better than ancient Rome, even though we have better civil rights. We fight for the causes of human liberties, civil liberties, human rights, globally. The most recent expression of this is from three days ago in California. An article was written. This is coming straight from the governor's office. And these are the opening words of this article. With access to abortion at stake across America... California is preparing to become the nation's abortion provider. Democratic Governor Newsom and the legislative leaders have asked a group of reproductive health experts to propose policies to bolster the state's abortion infrastructure and ready it for more patients. We have to make sure we can still continue to care for all of our California patients, one individual said. We don't want them to be getting squeezed out from appointments because people from other states are coming in. In 2017, which is the most recent data available for abortions, California by far is the nation's most populous state and has more abortion providers than any other state. Here's a comparison. We have 419 hospitals, clinics, or doctors' offices performing abortion. The next highest state is New York, with 252 locations, almost half of what we have here. That's New York, also very liberal. In other words, we wanna be on the edge, the cutting edge of killing as many babies as possible in California. This is from our, off, our governor's office. Of the 862,320 abortions performed in the US in 2017, the recent data, 15%, one five, 132,680, happened in California. There's now a council called California Future of Abortion Council. The council is focused on increasing funding for abortion services, providing logistical and financial help for women who need to travel, increasing the number of healthcare providers who perform abortions, and strengthen the legal protections for abortion. You guys, what was once shameful and secretive, you kind of threw the baby out when nobody was looking. That was shameful and secretive. And yes, some people did that. In the Roman world. Now it's in the open, it's being funded by tax dollars. And it's going further. UC San Francisco. The director of the abortion services at UCSF said this. I quote, one of its not one, it's not feasible to place an abortion provider in every corner of the state. In other words, I wish it was feasible, but it's not. So quote, let's focus on creating an easy to get to location. The bottom line is this the director of communication for Planned Parenthood in California said this, quote, it's about making it easy for people to access abortion in California, whether they reside here or are coming in from other states. And so here's what they want to do in a quote. Help to pay for transportation, childcare, hotels, or time off of work. To make it easier for people to come and abort their baby. This is from the 16th. Of this month, three days ago. Because this is what's happening in our society. We're talking about abandonment, abortion from the Roman era. It's only gotten worse. Significantly worse when we are the leading state by far in the number of abortions. And now let's pay people to kill their babies. Nothing should stand in the way. I hope that's heartbreaking for you. But this is the reality of our society. And the Christians in the first and second century rose up. And they said, we're going to save lives. We're going to adopt babies. We're going to stand against abortion. We're not going to go burn buildings down. There's nothing Christian about that. But we are going to fight for life. Because that's what the Bible expects. Why? Because of Deuteronomy 32 39, God says, I alone bring death and I give life. Deuteronomy 32 39, nobody has the right to kill but God or to give life. Christians changed their society through their conduct and they focused on the helpless. But they go from the womb. To the arena. Let's talk, as we wrap it up in a few minutes, about entertainment. Entertainment in the Roman world. There were four types of entertainment options if you were living in the Roman world. You can go in a, into a sports event, an arena, an amphitheater, some kind of spectacle, like a battleship, for example. They would fill the Colosseum with water, put some ships in there, and there would be a battle. You could go to a theater, a live theater, that is, Or you could go to a banquet. Most of these events were dedicated to a god. In front of you is the Colosseum in Rome. Before it was uh, destroyed by the earthquake. What we see today in life if you go to Rome. It's been destroyed by an earthquake and a few other situations happened. But that would be the Colosseum when Paul was in Rome. When Peter was in Rome. That's what it would have looked like. That kind of cover on top. It was a retractable shade when the sun hit. People can still sit in the top row and not get scorched. It was a very advanced society, and they spent money to entertain themselves. There was boxing, wrestling, foot races, chariot horses, and there were different types of gladiatorial practices. There were female gladiators who only fought with wooden swords. There were, forgive me if this is politically incorrect, short people, midgets also were gladiators. And then you would have the real gladiatorial experience, and the men would fight. Now, did you catch that? The women and the midgets only got to fight with wooden swords. And then the men would fight with real swords, sometimes to the death, not always, just for the record. There was a distinction. Even though Romans did not value women, we talked about it last time, but they understood that there's something different about a woman fighting and a man fighting. I don't want to see blood coming out of a woman. I mean, I guess if you hit somebody with a wooden sword hard enough, you'll see blood. But they still had a distinction in that regard. This was family day. On Saturday, you would go to the Colosseum or you would go to the arena and you would experience some of these, you know, entertaining events. And people went and sometimes even emperors fought. And so these gladiators became local heroes. They had fan clubs. Women would leave their husbands to become wives of these gladiators. They were famous. They were like our athletes today. And this was not just in Rome. This was all over the Roman Empire. Many, many cities in Rome had arenas that would seat thousands. The Colosseum in front of you seats 50,000 people. Circus Maximus, the next image, would seat 250,000 people. They're right next to each other, a few minutes walk. And if you walk today, on the left side is basically the palace. It's called Palatine Hill. The emperor would just gonna kind of walk from the palace straight into the Circus Maximus. You see that little building inside the arena. That's where he would sit with his um, entourage and he would watch the games. And 250,000 people would fit in there. Now, Rome has a million people living at this time. In other words, a quarter of the city could easily fit into a single location and entertain themselves. Various things happened there. One Roman poet wrote, writes, his name is Ovid. He writes in the second year, AD 2, he wrote a poem to love, and this is what he says. He's given us some dating advice. Check it out, maybe take some notes. So, when you go to the arena, chariot race, so chariot races would happen in that Circus Maximus, the previous screen. No, should you neglect the horse races? In other words, you should go to a horse race, go to the arena. Many are the opportunities that await you in the spacious circus. No call here for the secret language of fingers, nor need you to depend upon a furtive nod. Nobody will prevent you sitting next to a girl. Nobody will prevent you from sitting next to a girl. Sit as close as you like. That's easy enough. The seating compels it. Now, find an excuse to start a pleasant conversation and begin by saying things that you can say quite audibly. Be sure to ask her whose horses are entering the ring and what's her fancy. We're four different groups in Rome and... You always had like a fan club. So which one do you like? The red, the blue, the green, the white? Hasten to approve her choice. She's right. If as may well happen, a speck of dust falls on your lady's lap, brush it away gently. But should none fall, keep persistent brushing. (laughs) He's given dating advice when you go to the arena. This was the norm in that society. In other words, this wasn't only for the adults, the educated, the people with money. This was for everybody. In fact, the Roman emperor would entice people from the lower classes to come to the games by giving them a token. And then when you came to the game, you would redeem that token for free food. Welfare. That's what they did. They would gain uh, loyalty from people that way, but also attract the crowds to these games. The Christians come into the society, and they stand opposed to these entertaining choices. Christians had very low regard for what happened in there. Here's some quotes. One pagan critic says this about the Christians You do not attend the shows. You take no part in the processions, fight shy of public banquets, abhor the sacred games, meats from victims, drinks poured in libation on the altars. In other words, you Christians stay away from our entertainment. Why? What's wrong with you? Tertullian writes in the year 197, he says, We renounce all your spectacles. Among us, nothing is ever said, seen, or heard that has anything in common with the madness of the circus, circus maximus, that is. The immodesty of the theater, the atrocities of the arena, gladiatorial games, or the useless exercise of the wrestling ground. Why do you take offense at us? Because we differ from you in regards to your pleasure. Another individual in the year 175, Athenagoras, said this, when they know that we cannot endure even to see a man put to death, though justly, who of them can accuse us of murder or cannibalism? who does not reckon among the things of greatest interest the contest of gladiators and wild beasts, especially those which are given by you. But we have renounced such spectacles, deeming that to see a man put to death is much the same as killing him. In the year 180, Theophilus says this, We are forbidden so much as to witness shows of gladiators, lest we become partakers and abettors of murders. Christians were not willing to be voluntary participants in the gluttony and the lust for blood that took place in the arena. And so they stood against that. Tatian, in the year 160, says they utter lewd speeches in theaters in pretentious tones. And they act out indecent movements. Your daughters and your sons watch them giving lessons in adultery on the stage. Clement of Alexandria, we talked about him before in the year 195, says this, the instructor, Jesus, will not then bring us to public spectacles. In other words, Jesus wouldn't lead us into this entertainment option. Not inappropriately, one might call the race course and the theater the seat of plagues. Let spectacles, therefore, and plays that are full of indecent language and abundant gossip be forbidden. For what base action is there that is not exhibited in the theaters? It's interesting to know that even back then, theaters were associated with immorality and lewdness and perversion of society. The Senate, Roman Senate, tried to control it, tried to put some censorship on it because it became so horrible and lewd. But people found ways around it by declaring themselves a religious program. And then they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. Hollywood took on that mantra this, in our world, as you know, and became the center of all that's perverse. Some gladiatorial game, uh, writers rather, say it's worse to go to a theater than even to a gladiatorial game because of the immorality, adultery, lewdness, and profanity that would take place. I say this to you so you understand the difficult decisions that we have to make about how we spend our free time, the Christians of the first and second century and the third century had to make as well. The Christian freedom conversation is what we're talking about. You and I have to make similar decisions. How will we spend our money and our time? And the Christians thought through this and these were their decisions. The Bible is very clear. There should be no sexual joking, Ephesians Ephesians 5 and 6. Things that are shameful to talk about openly in public, Ephesians 5. There should be no coarse jesting. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, Ephesians 4. There are direct Christian biblical uh, commands for all of us on what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And the Christians understood that, but then there are the gray areas. So how do you think through those gray areas? Does this mean that a Christian is the dullest person on the planet? We just sit with our books and we read them and memorize them and that's it. That's all Mark allows for us these days kind of interesting but these christians also talk about no you should participate in sports and go to asana go to asana and go have some games and go to dining parties just do this in moderation that's what they say don't think of this discussion as about being restrictive if you remember the very first conversation the very first question that's posed in the bible in genesis 3 satan takes what god initially stated as permissive you can eat from any tree of the garden that's god's statement satan takes that and says did god say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden he puts it a, 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 in a restrictive format and so the human is now reacting it's like well no i don't want to be restricted he twists god's word but he's trying to make you think that if there's anything that god expects of you as a new creature in christ it's all of a sudden restrictive God wants to shackle me. He doesn't want me to enjoy life. He wants me to be dull and boring. No, that's not how we should think about this discussion. And as we end, I would love for us to have conversations around our tables for a few minutes. And so here's my suggestion. On the screen, you will see nine questions. I'm not asking you to ask all nine of these questions. These are just some principles that I thought through today. As we think about entertainment choices, I'm not saying this is exhaustive. I'm not saying there's a better list. But this is just something to think about as you make those decisions. Should I participate in this entertainment? First one, is it true? Or is this an escape for you from reality because you're going through a trial and you don't want to embrace God's providence and so you're going to use this time to escape from reality. Philippians 4, eight says, think on what is true. The Christian engages in what is true. There's so many implications from that. The second question is, is it an affront to the image of God and man? Are you celebrating something that mocks or undermines the image of God? Whether it's a sexual show, what perverts, what God has made in His image. Or perhaps it's such gratuitous and such such violent scenes that celebrates violence. In other words, in your entertainment choices, is that an affront to the image of God? Here's three things that I would recommend you thinking about. Whatever you're watching on the screen, for example... Is that image, is that an actual engagement in sin? That's the first thing, engaging in sin. Whatever is on the screen, is that an actual act of sin? Secondly, does it entice you to sin? So you're watching something that is an engagement of sin or does it entice you to sin? And third, is it an exalt- exalting sin? Exalting sin, enticing you to sin or engaging in sin. In other words, an actual pornographic video, it's an actual act of sin. So I think these three principles might be helpful for you to say, okay, should I watch this or should I not watch this? Does it feed my lustful desire? First Peter 2.11 says, fight your lusts. Number four, am I setting aside the greatest commandment? First, or rather, Second Timothy chapter 3 has a very fascinating verse. When Paul prophesies about the future, this is what he says, in the latter times, these are the kind of people that will come. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Isn't that interesting, that juxtaposition? Lovers of entertainment, not a lover of God. In other words, are you setting aside the greatest commandment when you are making this decision? You're no longer loving God. Number five, does it create a dependency? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. So, does this create a dependency for you when you engage in this entertainment? Number six, does it make you more like the world or less like the world? Romans chapter 12 is probably one of the clearest verses in the New Testament on this specific issue. When Paul writes, is that therefore, after he says, this is how you were saved, this is what's expected of you. Therefore, I exhort you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here it is. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Does this event make you like the world or does it transform you out of the image from the world it's actually the imagery of being molded into something number seven am i sacrificing fellowship with god and christians because of my choice we were safe to fellowship with god and christians so if you have this addiction to a tv show that starts every single sunday night at 6 p.m are you sacrificing fellowship with christians and with god for this show number eight remember what enters your mind will come out of your life. That's Jesus' principle. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. I could not figure out a way to turn that into a question. So there's my one statement. And number nine, will people marvel at Christ? Listen to this carefully, please. Will people marvel at Christ and glorify Christ because of the way he has been formed in you? This comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter one. When he comes in the future to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed when jesus come back, comes back to be glorified and to be marveled at among all who have believed in other words galatians 4 19 kicks in i am in labor until christ is formed in you Will people marvel at Jesus Christ as they see his image reflected in you? Does this choice pull you into that mold of Christ's likeness, being conformed to his likeness, to his image? And as we anticipate that day of his second coming, are we actually aware that in that moment people will worship him and glorify him because of the work in your life? Pastor John preached this last Sunday morning, Second 2 Peter 3, when he says, okay, the future is coming. The apocalypse is coming. What sort of people ought you to be? 2 Peter 3. Holy in conduct and godliness. Looking forward to these things, to his coming. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That's what we should be preoccupied with as we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord God, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for your kindness to preserve the word for us. Help us to follow the, in the footsteps of early Christians and to love your word and to study it and read it and to encourage one another through it. And I pray that the things we talked about this evening would encourage us to walk more faithfully and whatever the cost may be to our Christian profession, that we would be willing to pay it. We pray this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.